Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. The Beatles spent all of January 1969 working on their new album and film project. To say that there was a distinct lack of direction from the band and their production crew would be an understatement. How many songs would be ready? How would the project culminate? A trip to an ancient Roman amphitheatre in Tunisia or a show at the Roundhouse in Camden Town? Finding their original location at Twickenham Film Studios too cold and uninspiring, the tensions grew and they lost a band member, albeit temporarily. With their own studio almost ready to go in the basement of their Apple offices in Savile Row, the whole production shifted to central London, where the warmth gradually replaced the frost of the first two weeks. The Fab Four became five with the impromptu inclusion of American Keys man Billy Preston, and eventually the legendary final performance on the rooftop of the same building. Regardless of the many trials and tribulations experienced by the Beatles during the Get Back sessions, they were able to piece together a releasable album, though miles removed from what they had originally envisaged. The idea for Let It Be was a good one, but it never really materialised. The basic idea was that John and Paul and George should write new songs for the album that were going to be really good and we would vet them and make sure they were good and maybe do demo tracks of them, but the actual album itself, we thought, let's make a live album. We'd never done this. For the first time, let's make a live album of original music before an audience. And that was what we wanted to do with Let It Be. The idea founded because we couldn't find anywhere which would take an audience in England in the middle of winter, an audience big enough that was. And as usual, the Beatles wanted to do everything at an hour's notice, and you can't organise these things very quickly. And they also wanted to record in their own studio, at, uh, in Savile Row, which was not equipped properly. So in order to accommodate that, I had to move in a lot of equipment from Abbey Road into their studio. And the designer, Magic Alex, had forgotten to put a hole in the wall for the wires to go through. So I mean, all those silly kind of things. And the studio wasn't ideal, but we worked in it. And we had the further irritation of um, being followed by a camera wherever we went. So that during all the recordings, there were handheld cameras being over my shoulder, being shot and so on. Every word was recorded forever. And the, f- the feeling between the boys wasn't good. There were fights, there were rows. Yoko was always there. It was an unha- unhappy record. I was losing control. I, my voice wasn't heard. And I got very dispirited indeed. And. John's demands that we should make this an honest album, none of your production rubbish, he would say. I don't want any editing, I want everything to be live. Um, you, all we do is record it and you tell me when it's right. And it got very tedious because it wasn't right. And I would say, that was 19, John, there was a bit of a fluff on the bass guitar, easy to edit. No, we're not doing any editing. Okay, we'll do another take. 20, okay, 21, 22, 23, never right. Vocals not so good in that one, okay. 53, you know, it got really, really tedious. And the album 
in the end, because of this stricture, was not a perfect album. So the only way I could think of making something out of it was to make it like a documentary. I was working with Glyn Johns, who was a very good engineer, who's a producer now. And we agreed that we would put it in, warts and all, put in the mistakes, put in the count-ins, put in the chit-chat in between takes, and make it like a, like a private eye dropping in on the Beatles. And that was how I made the album. In the next two episodes, we'll take a deeper dive into the songs that make up the Let It Be album, tracing each of the songs from its humble beginnings, through its rehearsals and development, to a complete and sometimes final version of each track. Many of the tracks we will hear in this episode as the ultimate versions stem from an acetate recording assembled by project producer Glyn Johns, the man tasked with overseeing the rehearsals and, eventually, the multi-track recordings used to compile the Beatles' final released album. Much more than a button pusher hidden from view, Johns would often find himself on the studio floor, counselling and guiding the band through the ups and downs of the sessions. The moment he found himself in, the opportunity to capture an important part of pop history, was not lost on Johns, as he explains. I witnessed, during this process, something that I knew hundreds of thousands of people would love to be a fly on the wall for, which was these four guys sitting around playing live and joking and taking the mickey out of each other. With some of the time with Billy Preston, who'd called by and was asked to stay. And I thought, this is just remarkable. Uh, now, at this point, don't forget, it's again, we're casting back, cast back your mind to 1969. The Beatles the biggest thing on, they couldn't go anywhere, and they were huge, huge. They were on a monolith up here somewhere. And they'd, they'd already proven they'd make them, made the most stunning produced records, they'd changed the rules, they'd, just extraordinary stuff. And here they are, right back at the beginning, sitting around playing live. And it was great. It was even more great because they were who they were, obviously, and they'd achieved what they'd achieved. And I thought, God, this is fantastic. So I was recording everything and I'm playing so that they could see how they were getting on with the arrangements. Anyway, one night I snuck away with the, with the multitracks, went to Olympic and mixed everything we'd done that day and edited it together with a bit of chat and a full start here and somebody being rude to somebody else right. there. And, but all and in good. Save all, the last dance for me. Save the last dance for me. Yeah. There's Ready a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, and I thought it was really funny and I thought it was fantastic because it was showing who they really were. And so I took it in the next morning and I played it to them. And, and to a man, they went, don't, don't be ridiculous, you know, there was nothing to do with that. And I, I, I kind of expected that. Uh, you were mucking around in the boot of your car. You were emptying the boot of your car. And, and I you found... Came across <laughs> this mildewed tape box. It was a I... seven and a half copy of my version yeah. of Let It Be, yeah. Yeah. That and had been the... under the mat in my Bentley. Yeah. For God knows how long it was. It was covered in green mildew, exactly yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Anyway, there we are. The Glyn Johns acetates, as he prepared more than one during these sessions, became a core piece of the Get Back puzzle, offering fans the opportunity, through the magic of bootlegs, to hear better quality stereo recordings of alternate versions of the songs seen and heard in Let It Be. While Glyn Johns's running order was vastly different to the eventual master, it captured more of the fly-on-the-wall feel of the project than the final record ever did. So, let's start at the beginning, with Side A, Track 1, a song written by Paul about a car ride he took with soon-to-be wife Linda Eastman, who revelled in the idea of just getting in a car and driving until she was literally lost, something she had enjoyed since she was a child. Uh, 
just for the time being. When it goes funny, I'll give you a wink and do four in the bar. Because that it's one of those where that'll fit. It'll be better. It's it goes sort of like into a waltz or something. Well, you'll get the idea. One, two, three, four. Oh no, I your mind. Two of us riding nowhere, spending someone Sunday driving, not arriving on our way back home. Wink. We're on our way home. We're on our way home. We're going home. Two of us sending postcards, writing letters. On our way back home We're on our way home We're on our way home We're going home You and I have memories Longer than the road that stretches out of Okay, no, just straight Oh, no, no, no goes to B flat, B flat, B flat, D minor, G minor, A minor, stay on A minor, A minor, seventh to D, back, back. You and me wearing raincoats, standing so long in the sun, two of us getting nowhere, chasing paper, B-flat. You and I give memory Longer than the road that stretches out ahead Two of us wearing raincoats Standing solo in the sun You and me chasing paper From the very first day of the Get Back Sessions, the 2nd of January, the first ever recording of two of us, with Paul teaching the song to the rest of the group, who do a pretty good job at playing along. Like many Beatles songs, this one took a harder turn by the second week of the sessions, both in terms of tempo and arrangement. One, two, three, four.
a more robust version of Two of Us from the 9th of January 1969. By the time rehearsals and recordings were drawing to a close, the band had steered back to the original feel of the song, now with twin acoustic guitars and vocals from Paul and John, and a bass-like riff played by George. On the 25th of January, John and Paul couldn't resist throwing around some silly accents for good measure. Two, three, four. Standing so in the 
Sunday noon. You and me chasing paper, getting nowhere on our way back home. We're on our way home. We're on our way home. We're going Out ahead, with one hammer. Oh, yes, now. Two of us wearing raincoats, standing solo in the sun. Yes, boy. You and me chasing paper, getting nowhere on our way back home. We're on our way home. We are, yes. We are on our way home. We going home.
going home. So we leave the little town of London, England. From the Glyn Johns Acetate, two of us recorded on the 24th of January, 1969. With track one of the album being a song by Paul, it was only fitting that track two should be one from John, with some characteristically perplexing lyrics, as George Harrison explains. What else have uh, John and Paul done for this particular album? It might be worth a listen. There's a great song of John's called uh, Dig a Pony. And uh, it's, you know, John-type lyrics. You can syndicate any boat you row and various other things like that. A 2nd of January recording of John demoing Digger Pony, one of the few new songs he actually brought to Twickenham. While not as sophisticated as earlier Lennon lyrical masterpieces, such as Strawberry Fields Forever or I Am the Walrus, the song is full of wordplay and perhaps just a sprinkling of innuendo. It didn't take long for the rest of the band to fall in behind the new song, with some great licks in the intro and a fine solo from George. Here's how it sounded a week into the Apple studio sessions. One, two, three. 
can celebrate anything you want. Yes, you can celebrate anything you want. Any place you go Yes, you can penetrate Any place you go I told you so All I want is you Everything has got to be Just like you want it to Everyone you know Yes, you can imitate Everyone you know I told you so All I want Is you Everything has got to be Just like you want it to Dig a Pony from the 22nd of January 1969. 
To avoid endless repetition of the same songs during multi-track recording, Glyn Johns encouraged the band to try to string two or three songs together as the tapes rolled, just to keep them fresh and edgy. Here, Johns suggests they attempt Dig a Pony and I've Got a Feeling back to back. See if you can spot some more of John's wordplay. Okay, let's do the next one then. Is he taping that? Yeah. We'll do Dig a Pony straight into I've Got a Fever. Okay. So you're doing. You never change drumming now. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Alright, Glynis, we're off again. Yeah.
Yes, I do. The Glyn Johns acetate mix of Digger Pony, recorded on the 23rd of January 1969. The song would later be performed on the rooftop on the 30th, the recording of which would be the one to make it onto the Let It Be LP, minus the distinctive All I Want Is You refrain from the intro and outro, which were later edited out by Phil Spector. Track three on the album was a song that was now nearly a year old and had already been officially recorded at Abbey Road Studios in February 1968, though John was keen to resurrect it for the Get Back sessions, probably because he had almost nothing new to contribute. George Harrison explains. Also, we put on Across the Universe, which was a song on the album for the charity album that came out for Wildlife. And... uh, that really got lost. It's been around for about three years now, 1967, I think we did that. It's a really nice song of John's. There's many songs I forget like that, you know, that I do like. I like Across the Universe too, because it's one of the best lyrics I've written, you know. In fact, it could be the best, I don't know. I mean, it's one of the, the best, uh, it's, it's good poetry, you know, or whatever you call it. Without, without tune, it, it stands. Without some, without, see, the ones I like are ones that stand as words, you know, without melody. They don't have to have any melody. It's a poem, you know, you could read them.
from the 6th of January 1969 across the universe get back session style sounding nothing like the arrangement recorded nearly a year earlier before the white album the Beatles seemed to remember the arrangement and chords pretty well the song would only be rehearsed again a few times until the 9th and then forgotten about for the rest of the month that last set of rehearsals for Across the Universe would see this loose but charming version captured by the cameras on the 9th of January.
despite naming it as one of the songs of which he was most proud, John was never happy with any of the recordings of Across the Universe, especially the heavy-handed treatment given to it by Phil Spector, complete with orchestra and choir. George's first inclusion on the album comes with track four, a song written overnight in the first week of sessions, as George explains. The other one is a very strange song, which I wrote the night before it was in the film. You see, we were, at this time, we were tweaking them, and I wrote this song. It took five minutes, just from an idea I had. I went into the studio and sang it to Ringo, and they happened to film it, and that film sequence was quite nice, you see, so they wanted to keep that sequence in the film, but I hadn't really recorded it in Apple with the rest of the song, so we had to go in the studio and re-record it. Do you want to hear the song I wrote yeah. last night? Yeah. No. It's just a very short one. It's <clears throat> called I Me Mine. 6-8. Yeah. <laughs> One, two, three, four, but, but three, four, no, three, four, when you don't do it, bum, tit, tit, bum, tit, yeah, tit. Written on the evening of the 7th and introduced on the morning of the 8th, I Me Mine was well received by Ringo, tolerated by Paul and dismissed by John, as George played it to each upon their arrival on set. Nevertheless, George persevered with arranging the song with the band, producing this very waltzable rendition towards the end of the day. You know, a bit, yeah. And it's very quick, you know, so it's no, ha no hang-up. Castanets on that bit, you know. Yeah, that'd be.
Sadly, I Me Mine was dropped as quickly as it had been introduced, with rehearsals not making it past the 8th of January. The song would need to wait another year before being committed to tape back at Abbey Road. George also remembers the improvisation which would give rise to track five of the Let It Be album. The whole album, you see, is very spontaneous because all we were doing was rehearsing. So in between different numbers, we suddenly go into um, fat domino tunes or, you know, old rock around the clock or type things. You know, whatever, however we felt at the time. So there's little bits and pieces, like there's a song called Can You Dig It, which is just really made up on the spot with John shouting, John being John. <laughs> Again, shouting about the various things. From the 24th of January 1969, John letting loose on his lap steel slide guitar for Dig It, the kind of improvisation often heard during these sessions. Even though this recording would not be used on the final album, John's falsetto comment along the lines of that was Can You Dig It would be recycled at a later date. Of course, the version heard on the Let It Be album has a very different feel and was edited down from a much longer recording captured by Glyn Johns on the 29th of January.
The extended Glyn Johns mix of Dig It. Ultimately, a shorter mix of this recording would have Johns' Georgie Wood bit of nonsense edited onto the end of it as a segue into track six of the Let It Be album. I'd been overdoing it. You know, it was the 60s and we were just getting crazed and stuff a lot of the time. And so I went to bed and um, wasn't feeling too great inside my, in, my, in myself. And in the dream, my mother came in to me in the dream and she died um, maybe 10 years previously. And so when someone who you've lost comes back to you in a dream, it's a miraculous moment, you know, because you, you're with them. And you, your mind doesn't say, wait a minute, you shouldn't be here. You're just with them. And so it was really nice, you know, because there's my mom, and oh, mom, you know, very emotional. And she seemed to realize, this is all going on in my mind, of course, but, you know, forget that. She seemed to realize that I was going through struggles. And she said, it's going to be okay. It's all really going to be okay. And she said, just, just let it be. And I went, ah, and felt great, and woke up and thought, what was that? What? And I remembered the dream. So, what did she say? Let it be. And then I sat down at the piano and wrote the song. It had a lot of emotion because of who'd said it and my situation. So that kind of translated to the record. And I think that's why a lot of people like it. They, they feel somehow that kind of magic comes through. Why, why the piano? Why not a guitar? Um, I don't know. You know, just sometimes you just sit down at a piano and sometimes there isn't a piano, so you play the guitar. It's not like a formula, it's just what you fancy at the time. And that particular song, there was a piano in my room, so I just sort of wrote it on the piano. Um, and it, it still is a piano song when I do it live, it's a piano song. From the 7th of January 1969, the very first airing of Paul's new song for the sessions, which would eventually become the title track of the new album and new film. While this was the first time it was played here, it wasn't the first time the other Beatles had heard the song. A quick jammed version had been captured during the White Album sessions only months before. Now it was time to devote some serious work to the song. With Paul on piano and the band wanting to preserve the live nature of the project, John picked up the bass to add some bottom end to one of Paul's most iconic songs. Okay, try it from the beginning. One, 
two, three. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Did you get that stuff for the house? Have you got that stuff? Okay. So how should we start it? Not like that. One, two, three. Yeah. When I find myself in time Roll 102, slate 192, so camera A. One, two, three. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Better than I just want to get it in my head, you know. Yeah. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be.
Rehearsals for Let It Be continued on most days until multi-track recording commenced late in the sessions. Take 27, recorded on the 31st of January, with George's guitar solo overdubbed on the 30th of April, was Glyn John's preferred version and as such made it onto his acetate of mixes. Variations on this take would also be used as the bed for the single and album versions. Take 27. I've lost my little paper. Take 27, sing to second clap, please. Sing to second clap, please. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be And in my hour of darkness She is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be
our stomachs too. Are we supposed to giggle in the solo? Yeah. Okay. The last track on side A of the Let It Be album was a busked ditty from the Beatles' hometown of Liverpool, given the full Scouse treatment by the Fab Four, captured during recordings for two of us on the 24th of January. <laughs> oh, dirty Maggie May, they have taken her away. She never walked down life streets anymore. Any road. Maggie May, a composite recording from the original Nagra reel with the Glenn Johns acetate mix forming the centrepiece. It's interesting that Glenn Johns' idea to use the song would be replicated by Phil Spector when he was approached to put the final album together. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll turn the record over to continue our exploration of the evolution of the songs which formed side B of the Let It Be album. Until next time. Does it